0: Giving life to the nobleman's son. Chapter four, verses forty-three to fifty-four. My dearly beloved, brethren and sisters, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Just want to just recapitulate a bit for this little map here as to what we've been doing recently. You all remember that he came down to Jerusalem, of course, where he didn't meet with a very friendly reception at the Passover. He spoke to Nicodemus and then from there he made his way north to Sychar here where he met the woman of Samaria and spoke to her. We know up here, brethren and sisters, that it was this time, it was about this time that John was in prison. And that was a signal for the Lord Jesus Christ to enter into his Galilean ministry and indeed to open up his, his, really formally, his whole public ministry. Now he left, of course, the woman of Samaria after two days and he came up to Cana of Galilee up here, where he healed the nobleman's son at Cana. We're going to speak about that tonight. And then from there, he goes to Nazareth, his own city, his own little village, where the people reject him, until finally, in this, in this particular section, he comes to Capernaum and settles there, and makes that his headquarters in the north. And forever after that, Capernaum became known as his own city, as Matthew calls it in his ninth chapter in verse one. And we're not going to go all that way tonight. We're going to stop here and look at this little story concerning the healing of the nobleman's son. Let's pick up the record together then, brothers and sisters, in that fourth chapter of John. We all remember the very dramatic and thrilling days which he spent with the Samaritans, the two wonderful days which he would have spent with them. And then we read in verse 43, Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. Now we believe, and I think you'll see very clearly by the time by the, when we proceed through the story, brethren and sisters, that the healing of the nobleman's son was a parable of God to giving life to his son, his firstborn son, Israel. There's no doubt about that. You'll see that as we proceed. When the Lord gave life to that boy who was at the point of death, it was, as it were, a symbolic miracle, a sign, as John calls it as the time when God will give life to his own son of Israel, who at this moment of time, and certainly will be in the near future, at the point of death. Now, it's good to remember that. So, that's what the story of the nobleman's son is about. And in that context, it's rather interesting that the Lord spent two days with Gentiles before he went on the next day to give life to the nobleman's son. And we know, brethren and sisters, what Hosea says in the sixth chapter of the prophecy of Hosea. He says this about the reviving of Israel. Very beautiful comment in, uh, comment in the prophecy of Hosea, speaking about the healing and the binding again of Israel. We read here in the sixth chapter of Hosea in verses two and, or verses one and two, "Come, let us return unto Yahweh." For he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten, he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. And that captures the whole spirit of that of the giving of the life to that nobleman's son. Two days with Gentiles and on the third day a revival of Israel. You know, brethren and sisters, the apostles have been taking the Lord Jesus Christ and the Gentiles for nigh on 2,000 years. And the day is coming, swiftly coming, when there's got to be given life to God's firstborn son out of Egypt, Israel. And that's what that story is about. Now, coming back to the fourth chapter of John, what do we read here? Well, we read this. But after he had abode two days with the the, uh, Samaritans in verse 43, he went into Galilee For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honour in his own country. If you read that carefully and you think to yourself that Galilee was his own country, then it reads rather funny, doesn't it? It would read, you read it again. If we take his own country to mean Galilee. Let's read it again. Verse 43. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honour in his own country. Now, that would read rather strange, wouldn't it? That Jesus would say, well, Galilee's my own country. A prophet's got no honour, he's uh, he's got no honour, rather, in his own country. And then he immediately goes there. You see, friends and sisters, I don't believe that the expression in his own country does denote Galilee. I think it means Judea, and I think it must mean Judea. I think the whole context demands that it means Judea. And Judea was his own country. You know that very expression, country, is the Greek word patris, which you might say, well, I don't know what that means. Well, it means the fatherland. Patra, you see? Patriarch. The fatherland. And as Jesus said, the prophet had no honour in his own father. And of course, brothers and sisters, the very origins of Israel, the very historical origins of that nation as a kingdom was in Jerusalem. That's the fatherland. And there he had no honour among those people. Why? Because they didn't worship his father. And consequently, he turned his face northward, away from Judea, and went into Galilee. Now, the proof of what we're saying is in the last verse of this chapter. When John makes this comment, this is again the second miracle that was sign that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. And you know, brethren and sisters, that that is said not just once, but twice. Look at verse 45. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him and so on. And in verse 47, when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, So John is telling us very plainly that the Lord has left Judea and he's gone into Galilee. And it was only then and not before then that he performed that second sign. So a prophet has no honour in his own fatherland. He turned away from Judea where he had met a hostile reception and he went into Galilee. Now what do we find? On the way up to Galilee he finds an enthusiastic response from the Samaritans. We find in verse 45 that the Galileans received him. They received him. And although, brethren and sisters, the the response was not so good as it was in Samaria, at least they received him. And so the record is telling us very plainly that where people ought to have received him the better, at the centre of the nations, they didn't. The fatherland rejected him. But those people north of the land, whom the others in Judea said were spurious children, received him, and some of them received him very enthusiastically. And that's what John's trying to tell us. The RSV in Rotherham says they welcomed him. They welcomed him in verse 45. When he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. But you know, brethren and sisters, there's a little sad note as to why they welcomed him, because John goes on and tells us this, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went under the feast. Remember back in chapter two and verse 23. when we were talking about the people they gathered around him at the time of the Passover, when he had cleaned his father's house out. And in verse 23 of chapter two, we read, "Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in His name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now as the Lord goes north, and I put this map on again what we find is that there were many gathered around him at Jerusalem who believed in his name when they saw his miracles those many who believed it would have been a lot of them would have been those galileans who when he got up here they welcomed him but in between those two places he was received by people brethren and sisters and not only welcomed but believed on and they saw no miracle now that's what john's trying to tell us that's what john is trying to impress us with and the thing that's very impressive about this record this evening is that the word of the Lord is a greater miracle than what the, the, the miracles which he performed on sick people. Far greater miracle And that's what John is trying to impress us in this particular record. Now he says in verse 46, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And when he made that water wine, we go back to chapter 2 again. And we read that there was something in that. You remember the story of the six water pots of stone and the wedding that was there and how the Lord Jesus Christ changed that water into wine. And then in the verse 11 of chapter 2, John makes this comment, this beginning of miracles or signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested for his glory and his disciples believed on him. And the very expression there manifested forth His glory. It's not saying, brethren and sisters, that the Lord Jesus Christ was pushing His own barrow, as it were, and of His Father's glory. It doesn't mean that at all, but it was de- definitely saying this, that the Lord Jesus Christ was identifying Himself as God's glory. And that is, of course, a majestic and a very bold claim indeed. He manifested forth his glory. And Isaiah had said, the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. And he's saying, in effect, that's who I am. The glory of Yahweh. Now he chose to do that in Galilee. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Why did he choose to do that in Galilee? Well, that's what Isaiah 9 had said. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Galilee of the nations. Light had sprung up in that region. Why then did he go up there and manifest forth his glory? Because in the 8th chapter of Isaiah, Judah was offered the sign of the virgin birth and refused it. And if ever, brothers and sisters, there was a prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ being the effulgence of God's glory, it was being born of a virgin. Judea turned that down. And the people in Galilee saw a great light. Unto us a son is given. Unto us a child is born. That's the Galilean saying that. And he manifested forth his glory at that first sign, the wedding in Cana of Galilee, the last day of the first week of that week that John delineates for us in chapter 2 through to chapter 3, or chapter 1 rather, and in chapter 2. So that's why he came back there to manifest forth this second miracle. As John notes at the end of chapter 4, this again, The second sign that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. And I want to comment, brothers and sisters, when I get to that verse, why it is, I believe, that the Lord went back to Cana to give the second sign. It's very interesting. But there's a deliberate reason for that, as John said. He came there to set off the second sign. And he did it after he'd come out of Judea. And again, Galilee had the benefit of that wonderful sign. Now, having come up there, of course, we read in verse 46 that there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, Capernaum, of course, is a little bit towards the east from Cana of Galilee. I haven't got Yes, I have. I've got it on here. It's Cana, of course, here. And then Capernaum is a bit northeast, I suppose, from Cana, on the, on the shores of the Lake of Galilee. And that when that nobleman lived at Capernaum. It's about 14, 15 miles. I'm not used to these other things, but I'm talking the old scale. 14 or 15 odd miles from Cana down to Capernaum, went down towards the lake. And that's where that nobleman lived. He was called a nobleman. The Greek would really, as the margin says there, brethren and sisters, if you've got a marginal rendition in verse 46 for the word nobleman, it says a courtier or a ruler one who served in the king's court. He was, as some uh, translations put it, a king's man. And in all probability, he served in the court of Herod Antipas, who at that time, of course, was the ruler over the province of Galilee, and who was referred to in writings of that day as the king. So he was a Jew who served under a Gentile king in the city of Comfort. He had no comfort He was constantly under the shadow of the Roman jurisdiction observing the regal banner of Rome which he would hate and now his son is at the point of death. There's no comfort in Capernaum for him. The city of comfort. Now in order that we might appreciate the spiritual significance of this of the giving of life to his boy brothers and sisters the best way to do it is to contrast two men who had a problem with sickness at Capernaum. Both of them military men. Now, later on in Luke chapter 7, we read about a Gentile who lived at Capernaum who had a problem with his sick servant. And this is probably the best way to illustrate the meaning of the the, the, uh, miracle or the sign of healing the nobleman's son. It's a contrast. The nobleman was obviously a Jew in John chapter 4. But the centurion, of course, was certainly a Gentile in Luke chapter 7. Now some people, because of the correspondence of these miracles of healing, sometimes a lot of people think they're exactly the same healing. They are not. They are very much different. This nobleman had a son who was sick. But the centurion had a servant that was sick. This boy had been taken with a fever. But that man had paralysis. He was paralyzed. This fellow comes on his own behalf to see our Lord. But the Gentile comes, rather, has Jews who mediate on his behalf. They go for him. This Jew sees the Lord's presence as essential for that miracle to be performed. It couldn't be performed without the Lord being there. But this man has faith in the power of the Lord's word. He said, you just say a word, Lord. Don't come under my roof. I'm not worthy of you. You just say the word. That'll do. Look at the difference, brothers and sisters. Have a look at the difference. And see the difference in Jew and Gentile. See the difference. The Jew was God's son. But he'd fallen sick with a spiritual sickness. He was God's firstborn, called out of Egypt. But he'd fallen very sick was spiritual sickness. And at the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, was at the point of death. That's where we got him. That's the crisis that he's in. But what about this Gentile? He didn't have the same filial affection for his servant as you would normally have for a son. He wasn't going to the Lord on behalf of someone of his own family. Furthermore, brothers and sisters, the man that he went to the Lord was a mere servant. What does a Roman centurion care for a servant under his rule? What do they care for servants? But he did. This boy had a fever, which in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 is one of the curses mentioned that would come upon Israel for their disobedience. This man, you listen to this, this man's servant was paralysed. Think about that. When the Jews were at the point of death, all over the world, there were servants waiting to serve God, but they were paralysed. There'd be nobody to activate them into action. The gospel had not been sent out. But all over that world, God's providence knew there were servants everywhere, paralysed. Just waiting for a word to galvanize that servant into action and to spring up all over the world in his service. This man came on his own behalf, as Israel will have to do. They will come to the Lord Jesus Christ and look on him whom they have pierced. given that light at that seventh hour of which this parable mentions. But this man didn't have to come on his own behalf, brethren and sisters. Jews went for him. They came to the Lord and they said, this man is worthy to do this, for he hath loveth our nation and buildeth a synagogue. And isn't it incredible that the Gentiles did not come to Christ on their own behalf? But the Jews did go and get them and spread the gospel message far and wide. And Paul the Apostle, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and Peter the apostle of the circumcision, and with them all the other apostles who were Jews, took that message on behalf of those Gentiles, that they might bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ from all over the world. This man saw the Lord's presence as essential. Twice he says it. Come down, he says in verse 47. Come down and heal his son. Come down ere my child die. He saw the absolute necessity of having the Lord on the spot to heal his son. But the centurion didn't see it that way at all. Lord, you just say the word. Don't come into my house, I'm not worthy I've got. I'm a soldier, I'm a centurion. I've got a hundred soldiers under me. I know what authority's like. I say to this soldier, you do that and he does it. I say to this soldier, you do that and he does it. I know what authority's like and I know exactly that you've got under your control all the power of heaven and earth. You just say it will be done. That's the fate of that man, brethren and sisters. He saw his own authority in his own jurisdiction as being nothing alongside the Lord's authority. And the Lord's comment, for those of you who can't read, I'll put up a bit higher. The Lord's comment was, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. We could easily paraphrase that, couldn't we? I have not found so great faith as in the centurion, no, not even in that nobleman. And they both came from the same place, They both were associated with royalty. They both had someone sick and they both received the blessings of the Lord but look at the difference. And there's no better way to understand the second sign of the nobleman's son, brethren and sisters, than to see it set out like that. Now, we come back to our story in John chapter 4 as just taking that to be our background. And we read in verse 47 that when this nobleman had heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee he went out unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. You know, brothers and sisters, it was ever, ever the policy of Israel to get God to come down on their behalf. That was ever their policy. Twice he says it, verse 49. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Now, of course, literally he would go down if they plummeted down to the shores of Galilee. Galilee itself, brothers and sisters, lays already 600 feet below sea level. Right up there in the north, it's already 600 feet below sea level by the time you get there, as short as the tract of Jordan is from the foothills of Hermon right down to the Galilee, to Galilee, not a very long distance, but already you've come pretty low. And he wanted the Lord to come down, to come down. But the Lord wasn't going to come down. The Lord wouldn't go down, brethren and sisters, any more than God would go down. It was like Psalm 50 all over again. They thought that God was altogether one like themselves. But if they were in trouble, he'd come down. God never comes down, brethren and sisters, to our level. Never does that. He brings us up. And we're going to see at the end of this story... A remarkable contrast between their attitude of getting God to come down and the Lord's own attitude, whereby He ascended to the Father. A bit different, and He never sought to do anything else but ascend. They always wanted God to come down, and that was the attitude of that nobleman. And his child was at the point of death. At the point of death. Of course, historically speaking, brothers and sisters, is exactly the crisis to where Israel had come. It's like that little girl. You remember the story of Jairus and his daughter who was 12 years of age at the record, and the record says at the point of death. Can you see the connection? Here is Israel under the law, isn't it? And where had the law brought them, brethren and sisters? The law, says Paul in the 2 Corinthians 3, was a ministration of death written and engraved in stone. And here at the end of the function of the law it had brought them to the point of death. She happened to be the little girl, the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue, which had brought her to the point of death, symbolically speaking. Her literal condition was symbolic of where that synagogue system had got them. Much the same as this man's son. Nobleman though he is, the law had got them nowhere. Not because it was the fault of the law. It had the form and knowledge of the truth in it. Because the way they used it or misused it, brothers and sisters, and tried to make it a set of rules for human behavior, and it brought them to the point of death. All ruled over by the synagogue system, and that's where they got it. And Now, at this late age of our Lord's appearance, Israel had reached and sunk to the worst level. Fill ye up the measure of your fathers, said the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the point of death. Now, this poor man comes up to a dreadful state of mind. And the Lord addresses, not only him, in verse 48, but the crowd around him, brothers and sisters. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Now, of course, although in the words are addressed, the record says, to him, the word ye in the Greek text is in the plural. So the Lord's words were meant for all those who surrounded that nobleman. He was but representative of his people. Except ye see signs and wonders, he says, ye will not believe. And speaking to that man who represented his people, he pointed out to them the tragic failing of Israel. What did Paul say in Corinthians? The Jews require a sign the Greeks seek after wisdom. And you know, in that comment of the apostles, though he puts the both categories, brothers and sisters, as in a hopeless position, Have a look what he says. Listen carefully. The Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. We'll say this about the Greeks and their worldly wisdom. They at least put some effort into it. But the Jews require a sign. Come down. That's what they always wanted God to do. You make bread from heaven. Our fathers that eat bread in the wilderness, what are you going to do? Come down to our level. Do something for us. We require a sign. And Jesus, looking upon that crowd with sad and wondering eyes, would say to them, oh, look, how can you ever believe? You know, in the Greek, he says, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. In the Greek, they tell us, brethren and sisters, and I'm not an expert on Greek or Hebrew, but the experts tell us that the Greek is very emphatic here. No, no, you will never believe without signs, is what our Lord is saying. You can never believe without signs and wonders. You know, brothers and sisters, there were signs and wonders given in the prophecy which preceded his visit to the Galileans in Isaiah chapter 8. Have a look at it. They never saw this either. Signs and wonders. They wouldn't believe unless they saw signs and wonders Well, look at the context of the prophecy that took him into Galilee of the nations. (coughs) Taking first that context in chapter 9, the end of verse 1, beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And Matthew quotes that prophecy and applies it to our Lord as he moved into the Galilean region. Well, what did chapter 8 say, brethren and sisters? Verse 15. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken, as they did in Judea, we might comment. Bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples, all of whom, bar one, came out of Galilee. And he says, I will wait upon Yahweh that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. He left Judea. And then we read in verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh hath given me are for signs and wonders. And you know, brethren and sisters, there he was in Galilee. He'd moved into that region as a great life. They'd stumbled and fallen over the, the, the stumbling stone in Judea. He turned and, and as John says, let Judea go. He hid his face in the house of Jacob and he brought into Galilee his dedicated disciples who should have been him and them, signs and wonders. But no, they can't see any wonder in belief. They can't see any wonder in conviction. They can't see any wonder in discipleship and they want the physical miracle. But the I and the children whom God has given me, and who are they? Well, we know that from the context of Isaiah 8, they're his, they're his disciples. But we don't have to wonder, brethren and sisters, because in the second chapter of Hebrews, for as much as many, he says, for as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Who are the children? He quotes Isaiah 8. I am the children whom God has given me. That's us. We don't need physical miracles, brethren and sisters. If we are faithful to our Lord, if we walk in the way of truth, we should be to each other a sign and a wonder. We should be to ourselves a sign and a wonder that the truth could do anything for us. The fact that we even believe it, act upon it, anyway, despite our failings, is a marvellous thing. It's a wonder in the earth. And when you see brothers and sisters moving through the ecclesia, actively doing the things of God, it's a sign and a wonder. Everybody that's baptised, Either the chairman or the speaker, that the night won't be seen through without somebody makes the comment that God's arm is not short and that it cannot be, that it cannot say. And we look upon that, that person, and please don't use the word candidate. We look upon that person who is being baptized as a person who is a sign and a wonder of God's power. Now that's what the record says. No looking for other signs and wonders, they should have looked at the disciples and taught themselves what changed in men? And even though they didn't altogether see the point of view at this time, brethren and sisters, they were faithful men. Even now, James and John and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Peter, they were more remarkable men. They should have looked at them and thought, well, look, there's something in it of their lives. There's signs and wonders. I am the children who God has given me. No way do they believe that. Well, the man's been rebuked pretty severely. But the Lord couldn't turn him off his, his purpose. In verse 49 the nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. There's something very wonderful, brothers and sisters, about this man. As the record proceeds, his faith develops. It's not a very commendable faith to start with, but it grows. And although he's received a very severe rebuke, "You, unless ye see signs and wonders, you'll never believe me. He clung to his purpose. Lord, come down. The word Sir is curios. Lord! Come down, ere my child die. There are three words in this book here, brethren and sisters, on this story for his child, describe his child. His own, the Lord's, and his servants. He called him a little child. A very little child. A childling. Padeon, as the Greek word is, for anybody who who's never heard that word before. Padeon. A little child. A little childling. It's an endearing term. Evidently the boy was very young and he saw him as a baby. Lord, come down here, my baby dies. That's how he put it. The servants called him Paos, which means a young boy. And when the Lord gave him life, the Lord called him Julius, a son. And of all those who were addressing that child, Jesus, it was the Lord that gave him the status of a son. The others didn't. And it was the impartation of life that in the Lord's mind made him the son. But for the moment, the man is clinging to his purpose because of his little baby. Well, his faith has got to, go, got to grow. Jesus, looking at him, says, Look, you can go home. Thy son lives. And he believed that brothers and sisters. Now, he wanted the Lord to come down, remember? He, he wanted the Lord to be there. That's where he started. And the Lord said to him, in effect, I'm not going down. You go down. You go on your way. You go down and verse 51 says as he was now going down. That's your way. I'm not going that way. But the child will live. You've got to believe that and he believed. it. Now you may have wondered, brethren and sisters, why we chose the title this evening, Giving Life to the Nobleman's Son. Why we just didn't say Healing the Nobleman's Son. Well there's no question of healing in this chapter. It doesn't arise. It's a question of life or death. That's why the Lord says, thy son liveth. He didn't say he's healed, he's going to get better, he will amend. He said, he lives. And that was a question of life or death with that child. The question of healing never arose. It was a a crisis of life and death. And he said, you go away. And you've got to believe that. Not that your little boy will get better, will improve in health. He lives. And he went away, brethren and sisters, believing in what the record says, the word that Jesus had spoken. He had risen above signs and wonders. He was like now, a little bit like that centurion who said, Lord, speak but a word. He'd got to that point. He'd done extremely well. And off he goes. And every step he took in verse 51 was going down. And as he went down, brethren and sisters, you can imagine him from the steepness of the, Gal- of the Galilean hills around Cana of Galilee, as the ring of mountains, as Galilee means a ring, as the mountains didn't go in straight lines, but in circles of mountain ranges, in, prompt into the middle of Cana of Galilee, he'd wind his way, and he'd go down, and down, and down, and down, forever down, towards Cana, towards Capernaum, rather, on the shores of Galilee. And as you get near to that place, you look down on that emerald and you walk right into that lake, as it were, and as he would come down and down and down, every step that he took would be a step of faith thy child lives. But if the Lord didn't want him didn't let him go all the way, brothers and sisters, his servant met him. they met him. And when they met him in verse 52, after they said, "Thy son liveth." He began, he inquired on the, the hour when he began to amend. That's an interesting thing. See, the nobleman thought, brethren and sisters, his faith was such that he believed in the word of the Lord. And he believed the Lord was so powerful that he could begin to amend that boy. He thought that when he'd get home, the boy was on the mend. The answer was the fetus left him. The man would stagger back, left him. Yes, it went like that. Oh, you see, as great as his faith was now growing, it had not got to that stage. He wanted to know when it started. didn't start, they said it didn't, wasn't like that at all. It just went whoosh. Well, he said, when did it happen? When did that happen? Well, they said, the seventh hour. Now, what was it, brethren and sisters, about that nobleman that made him remember that? You know, he must have been a very, very intensely excited man, desperate man. And he would have hung upon every word the Lord had said concerning his son. He was desperately requiring that man to come and heal his son. And he must have been so concentrating so tremendously upon that issue that he even remembered the hour when the Lord said that, one o'clock in the afternoon. Some have suggested different times, periods. Some have suggested that the nobleman stayed there, that it was only 15 miles to Capernaum and that he could have got there quicker and therefore he must have stayed overnight. But I think putting it all together, the fact the servants came to meet him, I don't think he stayed at all. I think he hurried straight away. I think when the Lord says, go your way, he went his way. But he'd never forgotten that hour. And if it was 1 p.m. and Jewish times went from sunrise to sunset, By the time he got to kingdom of Galilee, it would have been yesterday that his son was, that the Lord had spoken that word. And when he came there, whatever hour it was, he'd never forgotten that hour. It was the seventh hour. And he was astonished, brothers and sisters, that that could happen so quickly. He thought he would begin to amend. But the fever had left the child. In the seventh hour. That's what the servants had said. They didn't say at the seventh hour. They said in the seventh hour. Somewhere within that hour, the fever left him. And it was somewhere within that hour that the Lord had said that. And the man's faith was completed. You know, when they said that, brethren and sisters, we read in verse 52, the father knew. See, I told you to read your Bible carefully he's called a nobleman. In verse 50, he's called the man who believed the word. But when he learnt that the fever had left him at the seventh hour, he's known as father. Jesus is right. That's his son. He's not just simply a little child. He's not just simply a boy. He's a son. And when the miracle is performed, what a wonderful and what a compelling expression. The Father knew. And the position of the Father, brethren and sisters, he would be in a position to be impressed and appreciate that miracle because he was the Father. I wonder, I wonder, brethren and sisters, what the Lord thought when at the eleventh hour he was in the Garden of Gethsemane the point of death? And he said Father, let this pass. The hour has come. No life here, brethren and sisters, not immediate. No life here. The decision in that garden was death. And the Father would be very sensitive to that. I wonder if the Lord would think back upon the graciousness of, the, of his heavenly Father's power through him to that nobleman who so at the seventh hour rescued that boy from death. And here he is at the eleventh hour in that garden. In the midnight of his life, at the very point of death. And is it a question, brothers and sisters, of the Father coming down? Or is it a question of the Son ascending? We know the answer to that. And the father left him, brothers and sisters, in that situation. Didn't leave him, but he left him in that situation to face that tremendous ordeal. And when it was all over, he ascended as a father. Wonderful it is to think about that. And no doubt, those are the sort of things which were crowded upon our Lord's mind. And he would think about life being given to the son. And the fact that when the son got life, the father responded as his father would respond when he ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. The father knew it was the same hour which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed. And himself believed. Hear that? And himself believed. But it says up in verse 50, the man believed the word. What's it mean when it says himself believed? You see, brother, there is belief and there is belief. We can look at the miracles which God performed in our own day. We can believe that the six-day war was a miracle. We can believe that. But do we believe ourselves? Is it a personal conviction? Does it do something for us personally? That's the, that is the essence of it. Those Galileans who were at the feast believed in his name when they saw the miracles that he did, but they didn't themselves believe. Nicodemus said, we know that there are a teacher come from God. He believed that. But the Sanhedrin didn't themselves believe it. This man believed himself. It became a personal conviction with him. Quite remarkable that it becomes a personal conviction with that man when his son gets lost. You know, in the prophecy of Zechariah, we learn that when the Jews finally come to our Lord Jesus Christ, to be revived as God's son, national son, born out of Egypt. They will mourn for God's own son as they would mourn for an only begotten. There will be a feeling, a fellow feeling with the agony of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the sadness that, went, that he went through and which was reflected in heaven and darkened the earth. They will see in that, brethren and sisters, the reflection of the tragedy in their own lives. They will mourn for God's son as they would mourn for their own And here is this man, personally convicted because now his son, is his son alive? Not only that, not only did he himself believe, brethren and sisters, but his whole house. Now, this brings me back to the point where we started. I said to you that I believe that Jesus deliberately came back to Cana of Galilee to perform that second sign for for a reason that's at the end of this chapter. And here it is. You see, the first sign turning water into wine was done at Cana of Galilee at the first recorded wedding that the Lord ever attended, of course, and the only one that we know he attended. That there that you're looking at is the first record of a family conversion. And he came back where he manifested forth his glory and sets forth the second sign. He didn't go to Capernaum to perform it, He stayed at Cana of Galilee. So the record has him placed in that situation for two firsts. First wedding and the first family. Cana of Galilee. In the region of Galilee. After he left Judea. So Judea is neither his bride nor is it the fatherland. That is spiritually. Because his family's here. He is the first family that's ever recorded that were converted as such in the Scripture. Very. Isn't that remarkable, brethren and sisters? Now you think, you think that's remarkable? Think of something else. Where do you know of another first family conversion? In the Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 10. Cornelius, a centurion, gave much arms to the people, Prayed to God always. We read in verse 2 of chapter 10, Cornelius, centurion of the band called the Italian band, verse 1. Verse 2, he's a devout man, one that feared God with all his heart, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. What chances would there be, brothers and sisters, of two Roman centurions who would normally be among the most brutal of humankind, what chances of having two of them giving arms to the Jewish people? I'd say the chances would be almost nil. I believe that that centurion is the same one in Luke chapter 7 who built us a synagogue and loveth our nation. I believe the very description here given of him, I don't think there could have been two centurions of, of that, of that uh, type of thinking. And if that is so, then here's your second man, isn't it? Here's the centurion. And if the, if the nobleman's house is the first family conversion in the Lord's life, the centurion's house was the first conversion when the Acts of the Apostles speaks of, of the Gentiles who were brought to the truth on, because Jewish ambassadors went out and got them. And I believe that's quite remarkable, brothers and sisters, quite remarkable indeed. Absolutely remarkable. And here are those two men found in the same city And they both finish up with a family in the truth. No longer serving their kings, neither the nobleman serving Herod Antipas, or the centurion serving Caesar. They've changed their loyalty. Now the Israel's back as God's son. Now the Gentiles are no longer paralysed, but they're active in God's service. Now the Jew, like the Gentile, believes in the word of the Lord, they don't no longer require signs. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, they'll have the last sign, his hands and his feet. When that's done, they'll no longer require that and there'll be two families in the truth. Two families, first in the world. And they'll join together in one great family. The spiritual family of God. Israel National, the mortal family, and Israel Spiritual, the immortal family. And there are those two men and they will dwell, brothers and sisters, in Jerusalem, which will then be the city of comfort. And I believe when you put those two things together, those two miracles, I think the significance becomes even more apparent. What a wonderful thing, therefore, that as we come to this particular section this evening, that we should be among that family of faith, like Cornelius, who are prepared, when the collection bags come around, to give alms to the people and who certainly love that nation. And who, by reading God's word, have seen the Jewish ambassadors on our behalf going into all the world to preach the gospel. And we've responded to that, brethren and sisters. And may it be when our Lord Jesus Christ comes to take unto himself his spiritual family, that it will be said of us at the judgment seat, and it will be true too, I believe, if it, of course, it is God's grace, I haven't found among you, among all Israel a faith like this. I've not seen so great faith, no, not in Israel. And we will then go forward as his family, brothers and sisters, to help him to give life to that Jewish son.